Yes, yes. Mark, can you hear me? Yeah, what's up, man? All right, awesome. All right, cool. All right, ladies and gents, welcome to Empty Podcast. And before we get started, I just want to say thanks to everybody that's been supporting season one all the way through season eight. And by the time you guys hear this, this will be season eight, episode 16. Now, when I first started the podcast, it was definitely to highlight my fellow independent artists, but me being involved in the in the mental health field myself, I definitely I have been giving a platform for my my fellow community leaders who are providing opportunities for the youth. And this next man right here, man, I'm really proud to say that we've been getting a chance to build these past couple of days. And um he is providing some leadership some mentorship for the community of Louisville, Kentucky. He's the founder and the owner of his own nonprofit organization called Gloves Not Guns. And he's been helping out families out there if they can't afford tombstones for their for their child who's been taken away through gun violence or police brutality. And um, he's also been training some boxers who has who has been making some noise in the silver gloves and golden gloves are uh, Golden Gloves Division and definitely last but not the least he just happens to be the grandson of one of the most iconic sports figure in American history and boxing history and as far as the civil rights movement he's definitely he was one of the most outspoken and, and just ahead of its time and and just became controversial a very controversial figure in the during the 60s civil rights movement and I know that he'd be super proud of his grandson right now because of the work he's been doing with the community. So ladies and gents, without further ado, we got Mr. Mark Spence in the house. How are you, bro? Hey, man. How you doing? What's up, everybody? Mark, thanks for, uh, for landing your time. I know you're a busy man. How's your How's your Memorial Day weekend going? Everything is going cool, man. We are gearing up for our seventh annual Ali Fest which is a festival dedicated to my granddad. Um, this is the seventh year of his unfortunate passing. We're getting ready to turn the city a little up one time, and it's getting ready to be a movie, man. I'm really excited for everything. How many years have you guys been doing the Ali Fest? We literally, so, funny story about that is that my grandfather, Muhammad Ali, passed away um, in 26, June 2016, and so, we had already kind of been gearing up and preparing for something locally when we first found out that um, he had went into cardiac arrest a few days before he passed. And then on the day of his passing, literally the day, um, a few boxing gyms, a few local community leaders, different people around the world put this whole event, this one week event together the day he passed away. Um, and we've literally been having it since then. Wow. This will be our seventh year. And the reason we do it um, is just to commemorate a few different things. Um, me personally, I enjoy that we do this every year because another uh, not known or not fact, known or unknown fact about the <laughs> passing the week that my grandfather passed is that we went eight days without reported crime. Wow. Passing. So that's a big deal for Louisville, Kentucky. Um, we're just coming back down from the Breway movement. Um, rest in peace to Breonna Taylor. Um, it's definitely still no justice, no peace. Um, Breway, and like I said, so we're really just um, trying to just keep that spirit of rebellion. Um, and, and when I say rebellion, not in the way of like creating any problems, but rebelliousness in the sense of fighting against what's wrong, standing for what's right, yep. and then speaking out for those who really don't have a voice. 
Yeah. So that's why I'm really excited for this movement. My grandfather always stood for speaking out, um, especially when things wasn't right. And, uh, you know, we just love bringing the city together and celebrating such a wonderful, amazing, outstanding person. And I just love to be a part of it, man, because it just it really inspires me and helps me to grow to continue to do this work. But it's just beautiful, man, because he's not so much Muhammad Ali, the icon to, to the world, to me. It's just he's my granddad. Um, yeah. Our grandmother, my mother's mother, also passed away um, this week in 2020, about two days after the protest. So wow, a lot of my involvement is just because it's celebrating the both of them. She actually also knew Muhammad Ali because she's also from Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. Um, and she did a lot of political work. Um, she did a lot of the first AIDS and HIV work that came to Louisville in the 1980s. So, you know, being in this uh, work is, I get it honest, and I'm really excited, man. I'm ready to be the new generation of this, and I take it very proudly and humbly, and uh, I'm just excited to see what this week's events is going to bring. I love it, man. So, Mark, I ask all my guests, where were you born and raised? Well, I'm actually, like my grandfather, I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. Um I've now lived over a good amount of Kentucky, different counties and areas surrounding Louisville in Kentucky. Um, excuse my static there. Um, but yeah, man, I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. I served in the United States Marine Corps. So in that time, I lived on the coast. Um, I've spent some time living in Harlem, New York, and going back and forth between there and Brooklyn and the Bronx. And yeah. I also spent a good amount of my time in Detroit, too. So I definitely want to shout out the 313. East Jefferson, um, Inkster High School, them is my people. And uh, yeah, man. I love it. So, yo, Mark, what can you, like, before I even ask that question, what's the story of your family's roots? How did everyone end up in Kentucky, in Louisville, Kentucky? Whether it's grandpa's side or grandma's side, you know, like, how, how did they end up in Kentucky? Well, as far as I know of my grandfather, Muhammad Ali, um, our family's always been in Kentucky, part of Kentucky. Yeah. Um, and, and that just comes from what I would gather to say, just um, slavery and some other things. Because my yeah. grandfather, is, his original name was Cassius Clay the Sixth. So um, yeah. he's, we're also the relative of the famous abolitioner Cassius Clay. And so yeah. he did a lot of work during the Civil War. Um, he worked very closely with the presidents at that time. And I don't know if it was just a family thing. Yeah, <clears throat> where these people just had land here and yeah. they chose to stay. Um, yeah. But then you move into more modern times and my grandfather's mother, Lady Bird, um, was also from Louisville. So I'm still learning. You know, I'm only 29 and my grandfather, um, by the time I was born, his Parkinson's had progressed pretty well. So I didn't get to spend a lot of time asking questions and stuff. Um, but I do know with my, my father... He is also born and raised in Louisville. Um, right. His mother was in the Army. Um, and so I do know that sometime around the time, right after he was born, she joined the Army. And so my dad at some point lived in Germany. Um, I don't really know how often or not him and his father um, spent time or communicated or nothing. But I do know that um, he spent a good deal of time there. He came back to Louisville. Uh, and I mean, yeah, my mom's from Louisville. And I think that um, just being completely honest, because if you know anything about Muhammad Ali, 
you know that a lot of his children are scattered out throughout the United States. And so I don't really know why they wouldn't have moved or went anywhere outside of Louisville. But one thing I'll tell you about Louisville people when we're born and raised, yeah. finds a way back. You're going to yeah. find Louisville where you at, and you're going to find your way back. That's how yeah. um, And the reason that is because even my grandfather still had property in Louisville, having lived in Phoenix and Chicago and some Miami and some other places. Uh, so I think it was just really a preference thing. Like, I know that was kind of going around about the say, uh, but because uh, that's how I kind of find myself back here. Um, I moved to Harlem right at the, the, the beginning, a little bit before the beginning of the pandemic um, when COVID-19 first broke out. And uh, yeah. I found myself back in Louisville for a number of reasons. Um, a lot doing dirt because it was COVID. Um, a lot also because of Breonna Taylor. And I just felt the need to be a part of the movement and really just lend uh, my time to that. And it's definitely been a, a changing uh, movement and impactful thing for me as part of my life. But uh, yeah, man, it's just it's that, it's that old saying, you know, uh, it doesn't matter where you're at. <laughs> you're going to find some love where you're at or you're going to find your way back. And uh, for, that's pretty for sure. it, man. Nice. What can you remember about the community of Louisville growing up, let's say your elementary years? Like what started standing out to you about your community? Like elementary years, what did you notice? Ah, oh, man. You know, I'm I'm a very, 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 very um, intellectual person. And um, early on, I knew that something was different about where I lived and where I was from yeah. because of the, the energies, you know, sometimes and the things people would say. Um, I, I just I'm a certified adult peer support specialist so that's on the therapy track and I do a lot of like therapy and psychology based work and um, I always talk to people about like in your childhood you know how these different things you pick up on stuff quickly and how when things don't get addressed in your childhood it sprinkles over into adulthood and so the things I noticed early on as a child is what I you know what I've struggled with as an adult and um it started in the school system um i've been enrolled in early childhood and schooling programs since i was as young as two um at yeah. the time i was about three or four i was diagnosed with add um yeah. so if you pick up on things you notice things that was a trend in the 90s that you would see a lot of black and latinx um children being diagnosed with different um psychological cognitive and behavioral um disorders and, and illnesses and stuff so right. early on i knew something was different about where we lived simply because um we were uh just going through different things like the school system telling my mom that you know they wanted me to be a certain way or to do this and do that and i'm saying mom i don't i don't like this i don't think this works you know and then my mom kind of having to just kind of tie her hands because it's the school system and you know, in those times, it seemed like the school system had a lot of control over women keeping their children or, you know, just being involved in state's care and stuff like that. I don't really know how to articulate it in a more summarized way for this interview, but I noticed as a small person in school that things were different simply because of how I was being treated versus my classmates. And so I said all that to say is because I was actually in um, what we would call here in Kentucky, it would be like BD or EBD, which yeah. would be for children that are labeled with um, behavioral disorders. Yeah. And so early on, they were saying like, 
I had these delays and these things going on. And so <laughs> at almost 30 years old, you know, I tell people this, this testimony, they're like, oh, no, I can't see it. I don't know what these people are talking about. Um, and that's what I would say as a kid is that I don't think I need to be here. This isn't where I need to be at. And, and so early on, once I seen how they disregard, you know, certain needs and things for children in the space of education, I knew something was up. I knew something was up. Because um, I would see my mom fight. Um, yeah, when I was she would raise hell. Old. She wasn't trying to oh. have it. Like, hell no. Well, because it leads to other stuff. And so what you've seen is that a lot of these children that were or, or grown people, grown people that are that would have been children in the 90s, they were diagnosed with things and put on medicine. And then if you look at the prison records or the prisons and you look at how many of them come from childhoods with trauma and behavioral disorders. And then you look at them in prison and you're like, wow, it's like a walk down path straight to prison. You know, I had teachers say that. You know, as, a, as my time as a student here is like, you know, we feel like this is just a holding place till it's time for you to go to jail. Wow. You know, time for you to go to prison. You know, and like I try to tell people, Kentucky is a very, very interesting place because <laughs> it's almost like it's a time capsule. You know, yeah. We call it the valley here. And uh, it's not that people are so behind. You've got some of the most brilliant people and intelligent people that will probably exist coming out of Kentucky. When you talk about history and human culture and stuff like that. But the problem is, is the scarcity of resources and education. Um, you know, most people here don't even have proper medical and health care. So it's one thing, you know, to have an OK education if you don't even have that. Yeah. And so what you find is that all of that compounds into the environment and how the people are, how things are. And so in Kentucky, it's easy to feel like you're in a bubble. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So life is one way till you leave Kentucky. And that's what I tell <laughs> a lot of people. Like living in Harlem, having lived in Kentucky and being born and raised here, it was a culture shock because the way black people live up north, and, <laughs> and I hate saying it like up north, like it's 1865, but that was the energy, you know, because yeah. it's still active in this day in 2023. <laughs> you know, I, oh, yeah. I went to New York, it was 20, like 2019, 2020. Um, and, and again, you know, people there was like, you don't know you can, you know, because the thing in Harlem was like how people shoot dice in broad daylight on the sidewalk. Yeah. I'm like, wow, y'all can do this? And they like, man, where you from? You didn't? And then I say, I'm from Kentucky. And they like, oh, my bad. You know, where they can't even joke on me because they like, they know, you know, people up north know like a lot of people in Kentucky ain't, ain't feeling and living that way. And so it was a culture shock to do that and then come back to Kentucky, especially in the heart of Breonna Taylor. Because even in the moments, it felt like we were still in the civil rights era, actively in color, in modern day. And then I go to New York, and it just feels so free to be a black man. And I'm walking around, I'm being myself. I'm, I'm not being stereotyped for having Nikes and Jordans on, because everybody's got that on. And that's the culture, you know? Like, the police were so cool when I was in New York. And, you know, I tell a lot of people, because in Kentucky, you go back to that lack of education. I have relatives... And people in, in Kentucky that have never been on an airplane. Yeah. And they're adults with jobs. Could have been on an airplane. Could have been, you know, to the Florida Keys. They just never have because they didn't have the desire to. You know, I've had a few people tell me, I don't, airplanes crash. <laughs> you know, you got people in 2023 that's still saying, well, I ain't getting on no plane because uh, the airplane I seen on the news and the plane crashed. And it's like, dude, cars crash like three times that right in Kentucky. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and so that's the reality we was living in, and so with everything I do, it was to try to like 
you can't really wake everybody up at once. Can't really change a whole lot at once. But it was definitely just to slowly start the wheel to spinning and going to get that done. Because that's how it happened to me. Like, just life was one way till I left Kentucky. You know what I'm saying? And then met people that wasn't from Kentucky. And they're telling me, you can do this. And in New York, they do this. And I'm thinking, like, y'all going to go to jail. <laughs> and then I get up there and nobody went to jail. Wow. Uh, that that was the fear of it all because like in like just in Louisville and Lexington, those are the two biggest cities in Kentucky. Neither city has a major or a professional team. For real? You know, we have minor league baseball, we got minor league soccer, we've got arena football, we got, you know, stuff that's close to it. And if you you know, if you're a basketball fan, you know about Louisville because of Rick Patino, the Louisville Cardinals, um, you know, different people who went to the NBA, uh, D'Angelo Russell. So, you know, Louisville's really a basketball city. Kentucky's a basketball place. But the closest we get to anything professional is nine basketball, football. But most, you know, most of the attention comes here because of basketball, football. And then, you know, we very much deviate away from things that I would say cater to black people or the likes and promotion of empowering black people. And, you know, that's always been an issue. So that's, again, when I noticed things was different as a kid. Because I'm like, we don't have no professional teams. <laughs> you know, we don't have no major big attractions or nothing. And so, you know, and, and I, I think about this a lot because if you're familiar with the song Lollipop by Lil Wayne. So um, the writer of that song is Static Major, who also wrote Pony by Genuine who also oh, wow. contributed to a great deal of Aaliyah's work, who also contributes to, even in his death, contributes posthumously to a great deal of the music you hear today from artists such as Drake, from artists such as The Weeknd. You know, I could go on and on. And uh, locally, you know, he was celebrated. But when you look at another place, like when you look at just in, right up the street in Indianapolis with, with Mike Epps, yeah, they treat Mike Epps like a king in Indianapolis. I mean, it's unreal to see a black man in a place, you know, because the, the Klan started in Indiana. So again, like it's unreal to be in Indianapolis and see the way that they receive and treat Mike Epps being a black man. Yeah, he came from poverty in that community, and then you get the Louisville <clears throat> and the I would say because I don't know all the history. I'm only 29, so I'm learning as I go. But at, up until ESTG and Bryson Tiller, again from Louisville, Kentucky. Static Major and Muhammad Ali are the two biggest black men that have ever succeeded and gotten out of Louisville, Kentucky. You see what I'm saying? And there's gaps in their achievements, especially with this generation. And it's not it's not exactly celebrated in the way it would if they were from different cities. You see what I'm saying? Yep. Like you go to Louisiana, they have Louisiana Fest. You yeah. know what I'm saying? They have you know, like the thing they do for Pimp C and Bun B in Houston, like we don't have those kind of things. And I've always contributed to that is being, you know, I feel like we sit in a way of a lot of confusion when it comes to things and culture and humanity. And so I've always felt like that the point was just for the black people here to never feel good about themselves or to feel, you know, and it goes back to a lot of things historically, but it's just if we had a, you know, that there's an NBA team or NFL team in Louisville, Kentucky, or Lexington, Kentucky. And they're pulling kids locally for these teams. 
and they're coming from poverty or they're coming from a population of people who spend a lot of time in the courthouse and child support and all these things that break in, you know, progress economically, right? Yep. And so if they can get lawyers, then you're going to see that economic, you know, that benefit's going to decrease more and more. And then people are not going to have jobs. And you see what I'm saying? And because uh, uh-huh. Kentucky at some point was number one for incarceration in the world. I don't know the up to date statistics, um, but Kentucky has kind of stayed in that place for a long time. We got number one for opioid addiction, number one for grandchildren being raised by grandparents, number one for children being abused and different things. And, you know, I'm here to say, you know, because I know sometimes, you know, in this place we live in, our words can cost us, you know, and I only say cost us, you know, because I know, you know, just where my grandfather's words took him, right? Um, I'm saying all that to say is that just that statement alone that I have to say it because I know where I'm at and who I'm dealing with. You see what I'm saying? Yep. And uh, that's the environment, you know, but it's 2023. And I think that's what makes it all confusing because it's 2023, you know? Let me ask you this, Mark. As a high school kid, what do you remember about those high school years? What did you do to get yourself out of trouble? What did you do to get yourself focused? What was that like for you, those four years? Those four years was crazy. Um, Cause I actually got in trouble when I was about 13 or 14. So I got sent away. Um, and then I was kind of just in and out of trouble, different things was going on. So I was going down a really, really bad path. And uh, I just met a lot of people along the way in life that connected me with different resources, opportunities. And I found myself back home and I went to an alternative school that gave me the option to graduate a year early. So I graduated when I was like 17. Yeah. College. I joined the military and I just kept, you know, because in those times, every single thing wasn't working out. You know, it wasn't like a straight to here to there type situation. So I would take a break, regroup, come back, and then just try to move on to the next thing. Because, again, I think... If I could look at it, just being honest, it seems like growing up in Kentucky is harder. Growing up as a child in Kentucky is harder than sustaining as an adult in Kentucky. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Because that's just not, it's not a light in place when you talk about healthy families and proper education and, you know, just making sure kids have what they need to transition into adulthood. So for me, I had to rush into adulthood, whether it was being forced or I just had to do it, I had to rush because that's all I had like I knew that I wanted more um I always felt like here they make you it's because we had this thing where you have to apply to the high schools so for the most part you can go to any elementary school but when it comes to middle school and high school um they do like a lottery system where kids have to apply so even if you live across the street from school if you didn't get accepted into the school you can't go there and so that's, again, been the culture is like that pressure of feeling like if I don't go to one of these high schools, I'm never going to be nothing in life. I'm going to be a cashier on assembly line or something, you know what I mean? And then it really moved like that because the schools, you know, if you got to apply to schools, there's going to be schools that are just like exceptional that everybody want to go to or it has the best of, you know, whatever amenities, things that they'd have to offer. And so those schools are the like premier schools that kids want to go to. And I know for me personally, when I didn't get into the performing arts school, 
um, that's directly next door to University of Louisville, I felt like my life was over. You know, For real? So I came in, I, I mean, I just did. Because I knew that if I went to a traditional school or any of the, like, the little neighborhood schools that the kids that don't get accepted in the magnet programs go, I knew I was going to end up down a bad path because I've seen that happen over and over again. You know what I mean? Like, again, just to kind of give you an insight, um, Jack Harlow, he's from Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, oh, wow. he, went to, he went to a school called Atherton High School. And so this particular school is actually placed in the middle of a very affluent, very supported, uh, very uh, economically booming area, right? And so this right. one high school, you have the opportunity as a student to graduate, not just as a regular graduate, but to get the governor's diploma. Then you have the option to take all these different languages and, and do these different exchange programs and all this stuff. And they had new computer, new everything, okay? Air conditioning, you know, all of this stuff, right? It's in a nice neighborhood. It's safe. There's amenities and things around the neighborhood, right? Right. And then you have the school that Bryson Tiller. And if you don't know Bryson Tiller, that's the guy that sings Don't. Incredible songwriter. Um, he's done a lot of work with the artist named Her. Good guy. Good dude. He went to yeah, Air Chris, High School. Chris, Chris Brown tried to say something slick about him, but people weren't having it. You know what I mean? Yeah, he was sadly mistaken because that's the, that's the thing. You don't play with people that come from the city of Ali. And that's no disrespect to Chris Brown because I really like that brother. But, yeah. you know, I think that happened with Designer and ESTG. And you kind of sync the two different, you know, paths that each artist, artist has went since then. So, you know, you don't play with people from the city of Ali. But... You know, just going back to that, you know, Bryson Tiller went to a school that's in one of the most impoverished, low, um, I wouldn't say low rent, but there's a lot of people that claim assistance in that area, food stamps, Section 8, Social Security. Um, and that school for many years was was ranked as one of the worst schools in the city. You know, and since Bryson's success, he's brought a, um, the Academy, um, the Grammys program there to that school. Um, they've got new stuff in the auditorium, everything, but it took him making it and succeeding for that to happen, you know, and that's just because he's a graduate of that school. You see what I'm for saying? Real. And that's what it takes for these schools in, in the inner city to even get new windows and air conditioning, you know, that they would have had a prominent graduate or, you know, somebody went to the NBA or something like that, you know what I'm saying? So that's the difference. And that's always been kind of like my... I don't have an issue with Jack Harlow. I think he's an amazing person in person. I've met him in person. Um, my little brother has been in like three of his music videos. We've promoted shows for him. Good guy. Um, but I don't like, you know, the imbalance of how things are being narrated and shown because there's so much more to Louisville and the actual tone and atmosphere and culture of this city. And you see it as a child. And we're even seeing it now with the success of Jack Harlow because you're seeing two different reactions to the success based off his versus ESTG and Bryson Tiller. You see what I'm saying? Yep. And like ESTG is catching hell, you know, whether yeah. it be from the local law, you know, just anything, you know. And it's like a black man to come from the hood and have his money and celebrate that and now he got money and then everybody else you know what I mean but then if it's like with Jack Harlow it's just kind of like oh, okay so this is cool we're gonna celebrate this and we're gonna stand behind this and have our programs and foundations back this you know and again that's not to say that he don't deserve it it's just it's a difference in how the two different people are celebrated although there's a lot of similarities you see what I'm saying no doubt so yo Mark so like 
you graduate high school and then you decide to join the Marine Corps. How many years did you do the Marine Corps? I was in the Marine Corps for two years and I actually went to college for two years oh, prior wow. to that. So um, I went to Kentucky State University, which is right that? outside of Louisville. How was that for you? How was that experience? It Again, it's eye opener, you know, because I come from inner city Louisville. So you only Louisville's got like several neighborhoods within neighborhoods. So it's like communities within communities and every community has its own culture. The way people talk, the words they use the way they dress, you know, all that kind of little stuff like that. So that's one thing. But then the other thing is like, you only know what you know within them little worlds. So when I got to Frankfurt and I was at K-State, I learned about the Divine Nine. So that's like your your, your frights and sorors. So, you know, you got the Q-Dogs, you got the Alphas, you got the AKAs, you got the Deltas. And for, for that, for me, it was empowering because it was like, wow. I've never seen this before. I've never seen my people be like, you know, just proud of being black and celebrating that and that being a good thing, you know. But even that, at some point, you know, at least in that culture there in that particular location, I kind of seen how it could be a little toxic too. Because in the college field, in the HBCU field is where I learned about like the difference in the different types of people within your culture. And, you know, you're a person of color. Um, so, you know, even with any people of color, you got the people that stay true and then you got the people that turn blue. And I say that to say is that the people that turn blue are the ones that get a little money. You know, they get a little status. You know, maybe they can, you know, afford better name brand stuff. They can move on from that place they started. And so it's a divide, you know, and that might even be like for you. Um, being a Filipino man, it could be like the people that are natively from the Philippines, like maybe your great grandparents or your your uncles and aunts who feel like y'all come to America and get Americanized. Yeah, you know, and they look at you different because they feel like you don't have morals or ethics or respect or you know whatever that might look like. Because culture to culture is different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One thing I've noticed with all people of color is there's definitely a divide between the people who can assimilate. The people who's in the hoods and the people who's in the middle. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then the rich people in them populations, which is probably only like three or four percent of them, they just they ain't bothered. They don't answer the phone. You can't reach them. <laughs> like, yeah, you can't get a hold of them. They out the way. Um, <laughs> I, but I learned that at K State. So I learned that in the world of HBCUs. And, and all of it in a nutshell was empowering for me because that was something I took with me to the Marines. And so I think. The same thing in the Marines, but it made sense in the military, you know, because I really joined the military because I felt like, you know, school really wasn't for me. I didn't really want to just go back to Louisville. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do in my life. And when I look back now, it was really something to do because I wanted to show the world something that they hadn't seen before. And that was just that it's possible for an Ali to do that because it was never about serving the country it was about what's happening to our people in active day and why would i go fight to harm another people of color when my people of color is not even getting the same respect and justice here and that's the idea you know even though that was said in the 60s i feel like it's still very valuable and valid in today's times because we spend so much time like worried about things outside of here where we're at and there's people here suffering there's people here hungry they need food they need housing they need this you know what i'm saying so in the walls of the hbcu i learned those things 
And then I went to the Marines where I figured out it was, if I'm an immigrant, you know, cause I learned the, the way that works, you know, maybe you can agree, but I learned that if I am an immigrant, you insert the country, you know, I'm a, a immigrant from Oaxaca, Mexico. You know, I, I come here in the seventies and I endure all of this pain and struggle. I work a job, it's me and seven other people. We share our living space. We put our money together, we save, we work till we can retire. Our son that's born in the eighth. Nice, what up Mark, can you hear me? Yeah, you got me. All right, cool, cool. I got you. All right, ladies and gents, I po- apologies for the technical difficulties. So we're going to pick up where we left off. So, Mark, so you graduated four years of high school and then you decided to join the Marine Corps. What did you learn about yourself as a Marine Corps? What did you learn about yourself joining the service? You know what I'm saying? What I learned about myself joining the service was that I knew that I could stand up for my people, you know, because a, a lot of people don't understand that when you join the service, you take an oath. So it's very much like when the police officers go through police training and go to the academy. Um, I, I took an oath for my country um, to protect from all threats, domestic and overseas. And, you know, I joined at a really, really young age because, you know, like I told you, I had gotten my acceptance letters from my colleges that accepted me two weeks before my 17th birthday. So I was actually 16 when I got when I got acceptance letters coming in the mail from the colleges. And so I was 17 when I graduated, a fresh 17. Very immature, um, you know, very just like hot headed and ready to do the next thing, you know, cause my desire has always been to have better, you know, to be able to pay the bills, to have a roof over my head, a car, my own money, to be able to take care of myself and sustain myself. And um, I actually didn't get shipped right out. I um, joined the Marines and then I was in the DEP program. And so for a lot of you all that don't know what that is, it's basically like a waiting period where you're a reservist until you actually go into active duty. And when I shipped out for the Marines, I got caught in a snowstorm, uh, which wasn't a fun experience, but it came with a six week delay for my actual um, process to go into basic training. So I spent a, a lot of time at RSP, um, I spent a lot of my time in um, Chicago O'Hare at the USO and just different USOs around the country while I was waiting for the next class to pick up after the snowstorm because we kept having our flights delayed and stuff like that. And so um, what I learned early on about myself coming into the Marines is that I'm a fighter and I'm resilient, you know, because I had been told that on my way to going to college and um joining the service you know people my teachers my guidance counselors people like that would always tell me all the time that you know i was a strong person and that if i stay resilient you know i could go anywhere i wanted to i could have any opportunity i wanted and so i think a lot of us as teenagers when we hear that type of stuff if you're going through something or you're not at a place spiritually and emotionally where you believe in yourself or have optimism or for like they don't even know what that word means and how to spell it um, you spend a lot of your time in a state of, I wouldn't call it low self-esteem, um, but definitely of disbelief, almost like an imposter syndrome. You know, I've seen guys that are, you know, state, all state for the football team, and then they're like bulimic and stuff, you know, or they're 
uh, abusive to their girlfriends or, or whatever it is, you know, they have these great talents and, and qualities and traits, but there's something else eating and egging away at them on the side, you know, because you're in disbelief. You know, you want to believe that you're this great person and that you got all this potential, but the world around you begs to differ, you know, and that's why I started my program because I learned in the Marines that sometimes what you see actually ain't what you get. You know, I seen a lot of people in the Marines who were, um, they came from all over the place. And so that's what I was saying to you earlier about what it looks like when other people of color take advantage of like resources and benefits that come in the United States and the experience of being an immigrant in the United States. Because what I learned in the Marines that I didn't know before is how many people of Asian descent and Latinx people that are actually in the service. And so again, what you see is not what you get because here in the last few years, it seems like it's been a lot of cultural rifts between the Asian community and the Latinx community community in America. And, um, you know, it helped me to uh, humble myself and definitely not be able to feed into stuff like most people do because, you know, another thing I noticed was how many people of color was in the service. And again, we talk about how, or I won't say we, in the era of having, you know, President Trump, you've seen a lot of people saying patriotism, right? This term is a big thing. And they're saying, you need to go home. You need to go where you came from. You need to blah, 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 blah. Well, who's building and doing all the work? You know what I mean? Yep. And so, again, when you're a naive child and you don't know a whole lot and you're only so focused is survival, it's easy to, you know, in so many ways be prejudiced against people you don't understand or know nothing about. It's easy to not care about your fellow black person and even kill them or, you know, rob them or whatever, because you don't even really know what's going on. You know, you look at TV and it's just hatred being spewed from every direction it can come from. They're telling you to hate black people. They're telling you to hate Asian people. They're telling you to hate Latinx people. But then you go to the United States Marine Corps, which is a service and a branch and an entity that is operated and paid for and mandated by the United States government. And most of these people that you cut on TV that they're telling you to hate, that you're seeing being marginalized, that you're seeing at eyes with each other are the people who are wearing these uniforms. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And again, just going back to culture shocks and shell shocks, it's like, you know, I, I was, I was, I was in a place where it was like, um, what is really going on? You know? And so then you got to go seek, what's really going on you know and that's not to say anything left or um negative about you know our our um service members you know i'm very thankful for them all and i wish you all a happy memorial day and thank you for your service um thank you thank you you know because we need these people right and not for what we've been believed to think we need them for but for the inspiration and the help to know that it's not just you I miss my family so much when I was finally miles away from them. And I figured out very, you know, because, again, as kids, because of how we love each other and the generational curses. I know a lot of my generation. I'm 29. I know a lot of my generation. So that's your 90s babies. The the first half of the 90s babies, at least. We felt unloved. You know, we had that cold, you know, that tough love, that on the rush love, you know, grab some McDonald's and grab your burger out the bag and then do your homework, eat your burger, get out my face. You know, you had that, <laughs> I've been working all day. And, yeah. Um, here's some money. Y'all go to the mall. I got to go to work. You know, a lot of us didn't have affection and love, right? Yeah. And yeah. so that's how we portray and perpetuate our lives every day. 
Yeah. And so again, I didn't know I was loved. Okay. And I'm not saying that to say my family's wrong or anything like that, but the way we communicate and operate, I didn't know how much these people cared about me until I'm sitting at the MEPS building, getting ready to fly out of the country to go serve. And mind you, this is during a time of war. You know, it was Obama era, which was a wonderful time for anybody that had been in the service, but we were still at war. And you know that a lot of our people, especially our young people, you know, I had a cousin, God rest his soul, my cousin Sammy, he had enlisted in the U.S. Army, and he died not very long after graduating high school and getting shipped out. He died in Afghanistan, and he was 18 years old. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of these young men and women have died, you know, tender age, 18, 19, 20, 20. You know what I'm saying? And so I knew that when my family was telling me they loved me, it was genuine because now we all figured it out. That I may get on that plane, and some of y'all may never see me again. And it, it's sad that it takes all of that, but those moments when I was getting ready to ship out and I just did my contract and stuff, I really got to see who was in my corner and who really cared because now it was coming out. You know, I never forget when I got ready to leave and my mother was just crying and crying and crying. And this is, I've only seen that happen so many times, but it's like, because, you know, the worst thing a mother can ever picture is sending your child off to go to the service and then some big Marine knocking on your door with a flag in their hand. You know what I mean? That's crazy, man. To come back in the, in the, that's like the worst, the worst nightmare for a mom. And so our people of color, that's mostly people of color, young men and women that could be, you know, um, Filipino descent, um, Dominican, Puerto Rican, black, you know, so many of our people that look like us, that's of color, you know. I got a lot of love for the Philippines. Um, my childhood friends been my friends. I was four years old. We went to pre-K together. We done did everything together. Jamil Bryant, what's up? Um, he is <laughs> half he No, really, he's half Filipino. Um, me and right. him, that's my, um, my Muslim brother, because he grew up um, a follower of Islam, and I'm now a follower, a follower of Islam, but he was, he's always been my inspiration to really get on my dean and take it serious. And um, his mother, shout out to his mom. I love her so much. She's from the Philippines. She's from the North Philippines. Well, that when, we were, when we were teenagers, he went up there. So I got a lot of love for the Philippines, for my best friend, but also just because... You know, the thrill in Manila took place, though. No doubt, no doubt. You know, so, you know, we family. We're really cousins. <laughs> yes, real. yes, yes, So, you know, now yes, going forward, you know, now you my cousin. You know, <laughs> I tell people, like, when I, you know, when it, when it's real like it, you know, so now, you know, when we see each other, we're speaking, we'll keep it going. Like, that's a lifetime thing because my grandfather loved the Philippines. They loved him. Yeah, they and, uh, You know, it's just mutual respect, you know, because that fight, catapulted him into success but it also helped you know the country and building economically you know so that's yeah. beautiful and that's poetry and i love poetry i love y'all you yeah. know what i'm saying i love you thank you and, man. Uh, much love man damn thank you bro go yeah, ahead, like go ahead, I, I got my baby here i said that's my cousin man. that's my cousin <laughs> yo so let me yo mike can you hear me yeah yeah i got you man so check it out, Mark. Like, um, so this is my perfect segue to ask you because I know we've been kind of building too. So, what was your time like as an amateur boxer? I know you did some amateur boxing. What did you, what did you learn about yourself as, an, uh, as a boxer? Um, all right. So, as an amateur boxer, I learned that I am not like my grandfather at all. 
because um, mm-hmm. me, I have a different way I like to do stuff. My discipline set up different. Um, and when it comes to training, I'm definitely a complainer. Like, man, I'm tired of running. I don't want to have to take this out my diet. Like, I'm very, like, my personality, I have a strong personality. So, you know, it's really, and I, and, um, and when I say that, I don't mean to say, like, I don't listen to people I'm hard to work with, but it's just, like, things definitely got to be a certain kind of vibe for me. And I learned that early on, because, like, they would say my granddad, you know, he, he, he was something, but, you know, he, he knew when to kind of cut it on and cut it off. So I found that out as an amateur boxer. Um, but also, too, I found out, like, just how like how much alike we were at the same time too um because you know the the regimen is the same and uh you know the hunger and the need is the same you know it's just we live in different times and the yeah. culture of boxing in the city of louisville is so different now yeah than it has been in the past so my time as an amateur boxer was really fun because i was just learning myself i was training hard but i was learning really what I wanted to be as a fighter because a lot of people don't know this you know my aunt Layla she she's an actual hall of famer she's a boxer but realistically you know my grandfather didn't really he didn't really want any of his children to box much less his daughters um and not because you know what he went through just because of what he felt like about the industry connection to the sport and what what you know the corporate part of it becomes and turns into and just what it does to you in the long run yeah. You know, because my grandfather was really woke. You know, I look back at his interviews now and I'm thinking, you know, people mistook what he was saying for being a lot more than what he was when he was really just ahead of his time and woke. Because he yeah. was saying, he was speaking to what we see a lot today with your John Morant's and your Kyrie Irving's. And that's why he didn't want his kids to be boxers. And so for me, it was something I had to put a lot of thought behind. Just like when I went to the Marines, you know, because he, he refused to go to the United States military. So... Um, you know, with me doing things that he f- for some time spoke out against, it was kind of like, let me put a lot of thought into this because what am I trying to do? You know, in the beginning of it, I really, I don't, so being honest, I don't really advertise that that's my granddad. Like, I don't walk around with a bumper sticker or like, you know, seek like a ride and a, ro- a red carpet rollout because Louisville was really not that kind of city. Like, we're like a baby version of like chicago and detroit combined you know what i'm saying so yeah if, if you've been to those cities you know where i'm headed with that when we're like a micro smaller combination of like harlem chicago detroit memphis it's all in one bubble you know so when it comes to like red carpet rollouts they're far and few anyway um but it's definitely not something i expect and so coming into it, I was just Mark Pence. I was a regular person, which I've pretty much been in a lot of the things I've done. And um, I didn't have any expectations. Like there was no expectations for any kind of certain success or nothing. Like I was just, I was perfectly fine being an a- a amateur boxer because I don't seek to live in the shadow of Muhammad Ali. Like it's a beautiful, beautiful, very beautiful um, spotlight to be in. But at the same time, I've always just been big on wanting to be my own person. Because if I do something wrong, and I knew that in boxing, because of how different things are now, <clears throat> it'd be easy to do something wrong. You know, my um my cousin Nico is Nico Ali Wash, um, and he is um, Rashida Ali's son, which is one of my my grandfather's twins. He just had a fight. Shout out to Nico. Um, I want him to know that he's still the champ. You know, Ali's we forever champions. Don't know losses make it no difference. Um, but I said that to say is that, you know, he just had this fight this past week and he lost. Um, 
And the way I look at it is like, for some people, it's like, just based off what I've seen on the internet and stuff, it's, ah, man, finally, you know, like, people are excited. But then a lot of people are like, come on, man, how you gonna do that? You and Ali, and it's like, at the end of the day, that doesn't mean perfect. And so I never wanted to have a shadow. And, um, you know, for me, being an amateur boxer was more about the sport. Like, it was just something I just wanted to do. Like, I woke up one day, I'm like, I'd be fighting all the time anyway, and just kind of was what it was. Like, I can do this legally. Like, this ain't got to be no problem. So that's why I have my nonprofit now, Gloves Not Guns, because I just love the sport. We just had boxing matches this weekend. Um, Three out of the four kids we had from our gym won. Um, And this is a good time, man. I just love seeing them fish flying. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Mark. Um, what made you? What was happening in your life around the time you started Gloves Not Guns? And if you can explain to the people, what are the services you provide for the youth out there? Um, I started Gloves Not Guns in 2018 after the murder of a friend. Um, he was murdered, um, and it just kind of struck me differently because the type of person he was, he really wasn't that type of guy to even be in the mix like it in that type of situation but it just at some point which this ain't a Louisville thing this is worldwide crime has just spiraled out of control where children women people who ain't even in the streets people who ain't even street people you know what I'm saying churches is being shot up there's mass shootings all the time and so I had seen the purge too the one where they in Staten Island and so the way that movie ended, it put a certain kind of image in my mind for what I saw, how I wanted <clears throat> things to be for our people. <clears throat> but also just in a way kind of re- rebuilding that type of unity and group form where it could be seen. And um, all of that I said is what Gloves Not Guns is, is a nutshell. In a nutshell, like um, we purchase headstones for victims of homicides that their families can't afford. You know, if, if a lot of families really, it's last minute, you know, and most people aren't prepared. And like I tell a lot of people, you see a lot of these guys and they got these expensive outfits and these cars and stuff. And that's when the truth comes out when they pass away because you see the GoFundMe's. You know, you see the, the biggest street dude that had all the money on Instagram and now they got a GoFundMe. You know what I'm saying? And not for three or four hundred, but like for three or four thousand, forty thousand, and you're thinking, damn. And so we pick up the slack for stuff like that. Like I've known a lot of people to have their lights cut off after the funeral arrangements where they didn't spend a lot of money and stuff. And so um, a big part of what we do in Gloves Not Guns is just providing assistance and, and um, helping families with sustaining after that loved one just pa- loved ones passed away. And then following up with, you know, not just writing a check and going on about our day, but also coming back to check on them, check on the kids. How y'all doing? Y'all ate today. Is it getting? You know, I know it ain't gonna get no easier, but you, you, can you smile today? You know, you wanna go out to eat? Anything? You know, it's been a part of our um, our companionship department we do because we do that for elderly people too. So you get a lot of older people. They find themselves in nursing homes, and the kids and grandkids just bounce on them. You know, and so we send our our men who would be former gang members, who would be former drug dealers, who would be. Um, all kinds of things. We send them to work with these elderly people and to provide companionship because they wouldn't have it otherwise. And um, I'm really, really proud of that program because of all the things that was almost in a way to kind of stop it, you know, because these men do have records. And so I spend a lot of my time around rehabilitation and reentry too and redemption. 
you know, the prison system is a big deal here and it's created a lot of rifts in families which led to the crime and the poverty. You know, I just, I really, with Gloves Not Guns, we strive to promote black male leadership and unity. But like I said, you know, whether you Filipino, whether you uh, Latinx, Latino, um, Asian, you know, a lot of us in these, we have shared experiences. We listen to hip hop. We tat it up. We wear Jordans and Nikes. And, you know, if you're in a place like Arizona, where it's probably going to be more Hispanic or more Asian people on the West Coast in these communities, where there's very few black people, then it's those communities that are the ones being marginalized and being harassed and being subject to mistreatment. You see what I'm saying? Yep. So ultimately what Gloves Not Guns seeks to do is unify all of these different groups of people and to share that information so we all understand each other. It's really the difference is the language barrier, you know what I'm saying? Like the thing no that perpetuates about all of us to each other, you know, um, and then the lack of knowledge, you know, because again there's subgroups, you know, we don't even understand that as people, you know, a lot of us it's going to be Chinese, Mexican, Black. You know, so for a person like you, where do you fall in? Because for most people, especially having, you know, you grew up in the 90s and stuff. I won't assume, but I could guess that there's been many times in your life where you were mistaken as a Chinese person. Just because nobody (laughs) knew what Filipino was and they never met anybody from the Philippines. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. You know what I'm saying? And so that's what we're trying to fix. Because if you don't even, if I don't even know what kind of person of Asian descent or Islander descent you are, we already got a problem. Because I don't know how to address you. And I don't know how to respect you or love you or appreciate you. You know, and that's the way it's been for people coming to America that have no idea about East Coast, West Coast, down South, Midwest. You know, you got the the, the, the Zoves in Miami. You got the dudes that talk slow and sip and sip slow in Texas. You got the people with the walks and the, the gang signs on the West Coast. You got the dudes in New York. You got Detroit cats. You got Kentucky cats. Like all these black people are different. You know what I'm no saying? There's a reason behind that. But again, if for a lot of people coming to America, if you only see rap videos and BET or these, these negative interpretations, then you're going to think a certain way. And that's going to create a thing. And that's why I, I think media representation is very important. So within Gloves Not Guns, we do have media and different like publication things that we're doing and actively creating for that reason. Like Gloves Not Guns is more like a global initiative to cover many different things and be like an umbrella to like all of the fires we need to put out <laughs> you know it's so many fires to put out and uh that's what it exists for we do everything you know i provide free haircuts year round um we've taken kids to concerts major concerts with hip-hop and uh you know we've done a lot of stuff so it's just like when it comes down to it We got all kinds of stuff going on. So, Mark. So, Thanksgiving and everything. So, Mark, how do you raise funds for the headstones? What do you guys do to raise funds for families who can't afford it? Like, how, how do you do that? Um, For the first, like, few years, I was doing a lot of this out of pocket. Just paying out of my own pocket. Me and my, my friends, friends and the people who was doing the organization with me. We nice. was putting our money together. We was paying out of pocket. We still do for the most part. Um, we're trying to, we have some GoFundMe's and we're definitely working on getting grants 
and different little um, initiatives that's available. Um, we just got our 501c3 last June, so June 2022. Um, and in Kentucky, you can't really raise funds until you're registered with the state and you have a 501c3. At least that's what I was told. You know, information again is you know you know the struggle, but uh, yeah. So right now we have a GoFundMe. So if you look up Gloves Not Guns Inc. Inc., we have a GoFundMe for our youth programming. Um, if you want to make a donation, you can at on um, Cash App um, Dollar Sign Gloves Not Guns Inc. Gloves Not Guns G U N S Not with a Z but with an S. And uh, yeah, man, we're just building up to all that other stuff because right now, um, just making sure we do this the right way has been my focus. Um, I've had a hard time, you know, when you see these different initiatives and programs that exist, again, globally, not just locally, where there's an, a mission to be served and then it's not being served. The people are being underserved. Um, there's a lot of corruption on the inside and then the job's not getting done and things are only getting worse. And so a good amount of my time for the last year or so has just been trying to make sure that we got all the paperwork right. We got the right amount of staff. We got our insurance and all the legitimate stuff out the way. Because um, I want to make sure Gloves Not Guns is going to be around for a long time. I want to make sure that it's going to help as many people as we can locally and globally. And I just want to make sure that the integrity and the pureness of it stays for as long as we can. You know, this is America. Um, and you see all the times, even the best, the best companies find a way, you know, down a road, you know, that leads to quality being different. Um, and, you know, we anticipate it, you know, we're not perfect. Uh, but, you know, we're just trying to make sure that even when them days come, that we equipped to combat it. And that we also know what to do to move forward. You know, I don't want this to be, you know, a Ponzi scheme type situation one day. Um, Cause you know, I, I will get older, I will age. None of us is exempt from that. And uh, there'll come a day where I have to take a, you know, take a back seat and I got to sit down, man. You know, so right now we're just trying to get everything right. So when that day comes, when I got to let my kids take over the programs or, you know, pass it on to the next, you know, thriving uh, young person on the move, I want to make sure that it's set up right so that we can keep doing this this way for as long as we can. Oh, yeah. So all my folks listening, um, when this episode comes out, I'm definitely going to provide the GoFundMe link and Mark's Instagram handles and the website for, so you guys can find out more information for the Gloves Not Guns, Inc. And um, let me ask you this, Mark. Let's talk about your work with the young boxers. I know you were telling me there's some young boxers that have also been under your training as far as like silver gloves and golden gloves. Um, tell me more about that. And so, yes, I got to, real quick, I want to give a shout out to Region 2 Silver Gloves Youth Champion, Isaiah Ward. He's eight years old. He's definitely built for, ready for, and all about the sport of boxing. And I cannot wait to be a part of this, to one, witness it, but to just be a part of his journey because it's something worth staying around for. I mean, this kid has got it. Um, I call him the little bumblebee. But I also want to give a shout out to National Golden Gloves winner for Indiana and Kentucky, Kyle Weldon. So he just brought us a Golden Gloves home for both states. Um, beautiful thing. He's from Paducah, Kentucky. He's only been training for two years. So this is wow. a big deal. Um, we just celebrated him this past weekend at our boxing event. Um, and like I said, we just had three out of the four kids we put in the boxing event win. 
um, which is amazing. So they'll be moving on to, again, Golden Gloves and Olympic Trials and different um, preset things before you actually become a pro boxer. And it's just exciting, man. Like, I love those kids and being in the atmosphere to see it. Um, I've been doing a lot of stuff in the background, um, just trying to help find opportunities for raising more money. Um, the youth boxers that are older actually train the younger ones, which is dope. And they're, the older guys there are definitely very helpful, very hands-on, very involved. And it's a beautiful thing, man. Like, it really is because it shows what our mission is, which is really all about mentorship and passing it down and, and paying it forward. And that's a beautiful thing to me. Like, I, I wanted to make sure that I, when I when I became at a place comfortable enough to share my story and my testimony and to just, you know, live more in my connection to the great Muhammad Ali, I wanted to be sure that it really encompassed what he believed in and what he might even wanted to do before his Parkinson's progressed. And he was at a place where he really couldn't do these things. And so the boxing for me brings me the most joy because it's the most special to me because I'm saving so many lives by these kids just coming in and sparring. You know, a lot of them, they come in and they just there to just get their anger out. Some want to be boxers, but a lot of our kids at that gym, they got clothing lines, they rappers, they um, work jobs, they got scholarships to go to college, that some of them are going to go to the army. Like, it's just dope, the variety of kids we got in there. And like I said, it's a beautiful thing because they could be anywhere doing anything and they choose to be in there with us. I love it, man. Let me ask you this. Who are the young boxers? Who, who do you think is the face of boxing right now? Is it is it Davis? Is it Durante Davis? Um, I, I really like Tank. I'm like super, like super big fan of Tank. I love Shakur Stevenson. I really like Devin Haney. Um, and just these these young guys coming up on the move, like, I really like them. Like, my thing about Tank is I love his backstory. And where he came from up until now. And, uh, of course, we got our local fighters, too. Um, and he's now a pro fighter, but Tay's Juicy Duncan, Troy Davis. Um, they're with the Louisville, um, Louisville Select Boxing Gym. And uh, their coaches is Nick and Sean Barice, dope guys. But, um, you know, all of these new pro boxers, even my cousin, Nico Ali, like, I, I think that he's in a, in a um, season of growth. And I pray that he gets to a place where he's able to really show the world what he's got to offer. Um, you know, there's always lessons to be learned. And I think that every great fighter needs a loss sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no disrespect to Floyd Mayweather. And I, I appreciate what he's contributed to the culture historically but I don't think it's always been good and just being truthful like nobody should be unflawed you know what I'm saying like I feel like a loss is when you come back from a loss that's what shows your character and what kind of person you are as a fighter you know because um, another guy that I've always kind of liked was Adrian Bronner and I know he's yeah. come so far away from boxing these days but you know when you talk about like who do I enjoy seeing it's gonna be guys like that that you know they still coming from the streets they still coming from the projects they still you know the kids that was like autistic maybe even or you know maybe they only had one parent they came out of foster care because it's just a beautiful story to see it doesn't always have to be the story you know because I was um I was actually watching the Conor McGregor documentary that's on Netflix last night and uh you know he's another guy that I've watched 
Um, I like the rollout and how he's been, you know, promoted and things like that. But, you know, I just still love that gritty, edgy, straight from the street boxing story. So with Tank, you know, with Shakur Stevenson, you get to have that. You know what I'm saying? You really get to see, you know, because Tank's from, from Baltimore. So it's like, if you know anything about that, you know, that's some real grit to have come out of. And the way it's transformed him is not just a fighter, but as a person. You know, and then you see him striving with the distance from Floyd Mayweather. You see him, you know, just folk. We hear a whole, whole lot about him, you know, outside of the sport. And that's good. You know, he ain't really got a whole lot going and that's good. So with him, you can only focus on the sport. It's almost like he's a perfected Mike Tyson. You know what I'm saying? I love you, man. And I just want to give a shout to Manny Pacquiao's son, Manny Pacquiao Jr., he will be fighting on August 4 with somebody from my hometown in Oxnard, California. And I got a chance to see this kid's footage. Man, like, there's some... He got... Man, the Pacquiao son definitely got potential. And, um... I want him to fight Nico. I really do. That would be a nice fight. Like, Pacquiao, Ali Wash. That would be... That would be crazy! We're gonna you know have what? to put some money on that. I gotta call my people up. We're gonna have to do the, the Ali Wash, Pacquiao Jr. It'd be a beautiful... It'd be for the team. It'd be all of that. You know what I'm saying? You like, know like, what? Wow, that would be crazy. I'm ready dude. for it. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that'd I be crazy. Our growth. Because Pac-Man was my dude, too, so... Wasn't nobody messing with Pac-Man when Pac-Man had it. Wow, that would be crazy, That's why man. I said I can't really go somebody who's fighting people after they in retirement. You know what I'm saying? Dad, dad, you know what? Wow, I gotta talk. Let me talk to you about that off the air, all right? Because... <laughs> No, nah, for real though, because I'm gonna I'm gonna buy tickets for the fight for August four. Um, I, I want to give a shout out to Roxy and Boxnard Productions and everybody promoting the fight. It's gonna be a sold out show at Oxnard Performing Arts Center, and Manny Pacquiao is the headline. M- Manny Pacquiao Jr. is the headliner for that night. And um, and so let me ask you this, man. Um, there's a couple more things I want to ask you, and I definitely, as a boxing fan. I, de- I definitely want to get opinions on your on your grandpa's uh, some of the highlights of his career. So, <clears throat> I want to talk about racism in America. I want to talk about what's been going on, of course, with Breonna Taylor. And I'm going to just cut straight to the point. In 2023, when I think of it, Mark, what your grandfather and what and what and what Dr. King and what. Um, Malcolm X was fighting for in the 60s what they were fighting for in the 60s is it wasn't really that too long ago from 2023 we act like 1960s was old no it's not it was it was it wasn't too long ago and what's going on in America still in 2023 police brutality what's going on why is that America has never healed or recovered from racism what's your theory my theory is that America's never recovered a hill from racism because we've never properly addressed it. Right. We've never seen anybody take accountability for what accountability would look like from the minds and ideals of those who've been subject to the racism. Exactly. Um, and, you know, even when those ideals have been, I guess, what you would say, like when they had these little conferences and meetings and stuff, you know, maybe they allow the space for it to be entertained but it's never been taken serious enough for real action to come forth um and we just do too much like hiding the stuff like me personally where i'm at with it 
and then that's another day for another story but my movie greater than ever will be coming out so y'all you know tune in for that um but i think it's just because we don't address anything we don't take accountability we really don't you know and then that that city to city as a whole conglomerate like we just don't take accountability like we're we're just now discussing all of these black towns that were basically drowned you know these towns that exist under lakes and dams and parks that are drowned you know that exist in that story of black people and you know that's why um you know i've met a lot of people and i noticed a lot of people say they don't have hope which is unfortunate and I hope that we can find a way I wouldn't say hope but surely enough we'll find a way to not feel that way but it's I see how it's easy to you know because even in today's time you know we're not doing anything any different than black people have ever done mm-hmm. and I, I tell these people this and my kids this and our programmers that you got to remember there were rich black people during the time of slavery you know Beethoven was black and I can't imagine what he went through you know being a prominent person of his time and being a black person you know what I'm saying? And then you have disabilities too. And you have fortune coming in. And all them things being in a nutshell and then that being a chaotic train moving down a track. You know, you had um, Masa Musa. You know, so the stories exist. We've been doing it. It's just, so what happens after we create our own? Well, then somebody comes out of nowhere and they try to destroy you. They'll drown us. They'll air bomb us. They'll create some kind of fake story that something happened to one of their people and use that as leverage to come and destroy our shit. Um, excuse my language. Or they'll just erase, you know, erase us or not include us in the history books. You know, it's it's so much bigger of a thing. You know what I'm saying? And, and even when you're talking about build your own, we're building our own with money that they print. You know, so again, it's really not, it's not enough leverage you know in america we haven't been honest about that you know because they freed us from slavery we're supposed to get 40 acres and a mule and all of this and that or you can even talk about the native americans they give them reservations but then the land is terrible you know they drill oil and do all this and that they pollute the water so there's really a w you know is this really a win yeah yeah this designated land but then y'all keep coming through year by year taking more of it back and building this bag you build the casino and then y'all come and buy the casino take it over you know y'all tax us too you know it's always something um and so that's why i said it's been so hard because it's never been intentional if there was any addressing addressing accommodating and taking accountability um it's never been intentional the addressing accommodating and accountability and the apology you know, it's it's interesting. I was driving through Palm Springs this weekend and just driving through the casinos and I thought about what the what what these founding fathers did to the Indians. All the land that we stole from the Indians, you're right. The reservation, the, the, the monthly checks that they get every month, it's not gonna compensate for what was done to the Indians, you know? And like you're right, man. It's there's so much hate crime towards every race lately these past decade and crime is going out of control i guess my next question for you is gun control the mass terrorist shootings that we experience once a week i feel like once a week there's a mass terrorist shooting and police brutality in my opinion that's all tied in one umbrella What's your thoughts on gun control, mass terrorism, and, and police brutality, bro? <laughs> why? Why? Because you say, all... look, they gonna have them people over to get me, man. <laughs> look, well, look, look, tell the powers, needs, look, tell the powers be... that be the the whole the Parkinson's. Um, 
honestly, where I'm at with it is this, you know. What needs my to be partner, fixed? What can they fix? What needs to be fixed about that, you know? Um, being intentional again, you know, because the energy and the attention that goes toward black people or people of color that own weapons, you see what I'm saying? That energy's never been put on people that are not of color. You know, the 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 temperament, you know. Because you and I have both been in these situations in a workplace or in a school classroom. You're having a bad day. Your teacher is not of color. And they don't understand how you react culturally and how you articulate and express yourself. And it's almost even scary to them or threatening to them, right? So, the teacher comes up to you for the second time and says, can you pick your head up? You say, okay. You just say it like that. Oh no, I need you to step outside the classroom. I'm gonna call your mother. I'm gonna I'm gonna write this down. Okay. White kid. Hey, um, little so-and-so, whatever your name is, can you pick your head up? Stop putting your head down. I'm gonna need you six or seven times. Shut up, you stupid. Bloop, 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 bloop. Oh no, that's inappropriate. Okay, class. So today we're gonna learn about you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you know, it's just that alone. You know, white children, and, and this is my opinion because I really don't want to make it like it's a race-based thing. But this is just what I've seen, especially been in the work, you know, in psychological work is that with certain children, even the threat of their violence is not taken serious, you know, and they're being groomed in violence their whole lives. Like, you know, playing Call of Duty or being on, on a video game or something, you know, you can literally cough and they'll say, oh, you cough like a nigger. You know, the use of the word, you know, the N-word, the use of the word nigger and then the way that it's being used. You see what I'm saying? Because what I've learned is living in Kentucky is that most of the people here that listen to rap music and get the ball fade and the Jordans and all that, they don't like black people. They love our culture and consuming it, but they don't like us. You see what I'm saying? They compete with us to have a piece of that culture. That's why prices keep going up and there's raffles and resellers and this and that. You see what I'm saying? Because they don't want to stand in line with us. You see what I'm saying? And so yeah. we have to first address that people are not wanting to stand in line for anything you know any black child or child of color that comes in a classroom and says i'm angry you didn't even get to finish what you was gonna say and they already hounding you you know if you're in the workplace and you've been getting harassed you've been getting somebody's been messing with your lunch every day somebody parks in your parking spot every day they might even call you a nigga or whatever they won't call you and then you finally on the 30th day of all this going on you say you know what i've had enough and then they tell you, you got you fired, you got to leave the job. Yep. But then your co-workers can come in there every other day because the Bengals lost. They say, I'm going to shoot everybody. And they don't do nothing. And then he actually does come in and shoots everybody in there. And then they'll say he was a loner and he, he had a, a, a bulging disc and they made him have, you know, it'll be something. You feel me? So realistically for me, because my nonprofit is but Gloves Night Guns was founded around people of color learning how to de-escalate without weapons and to not commit suicide with their weapons and to proper use them and lock them up and 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 you know deal with issues it's not saying don't use your second second amendment right and the reason i say that is because it's literally open target practice for you and you know what i'm saying because it's just people of color or people that are different from the norm or what they want people to be you know what I'm saying? It really don't even matter at this point because I've now seen, you know, Hispanics and Asians and all kinds of people, Native Americans, I'll be subject to marginalization, you know, but 
because right now we're having mass shootings every other week and it's you know police brutality this and that it's we're in the the age of trauma culture deaf culture and outright outrage culture you know so it's almost like a reality show like going expect to cut on the news and it's been going on because you're waiting for them to post what negative things is happening so you can feel like you can attach to something to feel like you're serving a purpose you know what i'm saying then you know whoever's running for office has something to talk about let me ask you this man i know that i i can't even count with my fingers and i'm afraid that i'll forget the names but there's been so much victims and so many victims of police brutality especially within the last five years for sure and um everything's caught on camera too it's 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 disgusting man and um what did you learn about yourself and and the united and this country when you were frontlining out there for uh, for Breonna Taylor what were you what were you seeing like what was your observation of what was going on in the US and and being in the front lines being an activist for her in the front lines you know cuz everybody looked so people were there were more people on the front lines and involved in the protests that actually knew Brianna and Kenneth Walker as people like grew up with them worked with them you know different stuff like that knew their mother knew you know knew somebody so when a lot of people were around 10 because this is personal it's a family member you know it's my best friend that's my da -da -da. that was me and her went to school together it was one of them you know and then the fact that it was a black woman you had your black men down there like yeah nah wrong one and you know, even for me, it's like I was. That was what most of me was down there. Is a long time, you know. Black people in Kentucky had been saying things was going on. It was like it was hard to really get heard and to get the. It was just a culture around that from getting out, you know. But then people not even really get. You know what I'm saying? So to finally be able to get out and to feel that sense of power and to know it was happening was one thing. And it's been a beautiful thing, you know. I wouldn't say that a whole, whole lot has changed since then. We still got a lot of work to do. Um, There was definitely a lot of, like, I wouldn't say, A lot of, like, indifference within the movement as well amongst each other. There was just a lot of different things going on. This is the first time Louisville in my lifetime had had something that big, you know. Um, We had another movement. 2004 with a man named Michael Newby God rest his soul but at that time we had a black police chief but a police officer that actually murdered him actually went to jail like went and served time and lost his job and everything um and it's crazy because his brother was one of the Taylor um case but you know it just goes back to Kentucky man and how easy things can just you know seem like it's cool and spiral back out of control long as ain't nobody saying and you know all of that um, but it was just one of them things, you know, being front line. Cause what I learned about myself is that I really love the city of Louisville. Um, I love my grandfather. I'm really interested in, in re-narrating the story and keeping his legacy alive than the way that they have been here. Cause it's, it's really not been anything connected to what he would have wanted himself that I feel like the family won't. And so it was a lot of why I've been close with Breonna Taylor's family, you know, and I tell them all the time, shout out to Miss Tamika and Bianca, um, shout out to Cortez, you know, it's it's really, I don't want Breonna Taylor to be grandfather has, you know, I don't want that image and that likeness to be corporatized, you know, we can't bring her back, you know, we, we can't 
And I hate that because I want every day for her to be alive. I want it so bad. Um, you know, but all we can do is make sure now the right way. You know, I was fortunate to be able to release a book in collaboration with Speed Art Museum, um, which is the art museum here locally through the University of Louisville. We did an art movie that went to Sundance. And those were all beautiful experiences with me and the team of people that did that with me. Um, because these are things that never happened before, not with no black people. Excuse me. And so it was just beautiful, man. And um, like I said, to do, you know, because even myself, since Brianna Taylor, you know, it's been a lot of, you know, what comes with being an activist and what comes with being a movement, you know, being, you know, under the right, under the radar and under the scope. And that's not always easy, but, you know, I know it's what comes with not only just being an Ali, but, you know, an activist and, and being a leader. Uh, for people of color in a place where we're literally everything's rigged and designed for us to fail because um, even since Breonna Taylor you know I've been a victim of a hate crime um, just recently I was at a place where um, a white man had called me the n-word several times and charged at me um, and that man was that I was asked to leave um, dealing with that um, but ultimately you know, what I learned about myself in the Breonna Taylor movement is that going forward, I can't ever stop, you know, and I felt like for a long time, I was like the Muhammad Ali of now, you know what I'm saying? And that's a bold statement, but I felt like that was me because we needed that energy. Like we needed somebody who was just saying whatever came across their mind and didn't have a filter and didn't really care. You know, and we needed we needed Ali energy anyway. The civil rights had Ali, and and it just it felt like to me it was important because when you look at life now, you know where are Malcolm X's grandkids, where is Martin Luther King Jr.'s grandkids, and what do they do within civil rights and human rights, and where where are they positioned? You know what I'm saying? Because it feels like we need that so bad right now. You know, you look at Reginae Carter; she's not a rapper, but she's influential just as much as her dad you know you look at um Bronny you know I always use Bronny James shout out to Bronny James because he's amazing dog for real I can't wait till he go to the NBA because literally it's a it's a beautiful becoming it's not that he had to be an NBA player you know but it's just beautiful to keep seeing it you know what I'm saying and to watch it unfold because you know he's gonna be his daddy but he's gonna be his daddy times 10 because he's gonna avoid a lot of stuff that his daddy didn't have the opportunity to you know what I'm saying He's got everything that the first LeBron James didn't have. You know what I'm exactly. saying? First LeBron James had poverty and this and that. This Bronny James ain't got none of that. So he don't got, literally, you know, he's going to be on fire. And you can't do nothing but be happy about that and love that. Because that's a beautiful thing to me. Like, even when you talk about, like, you know, I, I don't know what Michael Jackson's kids do. But, like, if there's a way for them to be, and be phenomenal at it, I would love to see it happen. Oh, we, yeah. just need, we need a Jackson out here. We need that energy. We we need that. You know what I'm we saying? We need, we need it so bad. That's what the world is lacking. Like, I, I wish I could see Paris Jackson, like, headlining something on Broadway or something theatrical. Or, you know, even if uh, Blanket Jackson was like an A&R. In the music industry, <laughs> you feel me? Like, we need it so it's bad. Blanky. It's a Blanky. Is that his name? Or is it something else? I really thought my bad. Blanket. His name is Blanket. I love it's it. Blanket. Blanket. Is it really? It's really yeah, blanket. Yeah, blanket. It's All right, blanket. cool. Because I don't yeah. want nobody. I don't want none of his.
his goons running up on me with my <laughs> L.A. girls and a sparkle jacket. Like, I'm good. I don't want none of the Jackson goons on me. But shout out to the Jacksons, though. My grandfather actually was a huge fan. Uh, he met them in 1977. Like, might have been sooner. And he took them on one of their first tours when he was on tour. So another family connection. But no disrespect, though. I really thought your name was Blanket. We've never met in person. I'm only going off what I saw on Wikipedia. No doubt, but, uh, no doubt. <laughs> you know, it would just be beautiful because could you imagine, like, if that's yeah. Michael Jackson's son, that means that he's going to have a certain kind of ear for music. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? It ain't going to be a whole lot that can fly. You know, Jermaine Dupree's daughter, she made beats, but Missy Elliott and Janet Jackson was her babysitters and people she's been around. And so she's not only got JD's ability to make beats but she's also got something else added from being around Janet Jackson from being around Missy from being around Monica and T-Bys could you imagine yeah man and I'm really super proud of uh, Chris Rivers uh, uh, I'm really proud of him man and um, it's definitely keeping Punt's, Punt's legacy alive yeah man uh, shout out to little Chris man he's amazing dude and shout out to YDB man young dirty bastard like Oh, These guys, shout out to all of Bob Marley's grandsons. Big shout out, big love. Job bless for all of them because I'm loving them right now. They make music. And, uh, you know, just shout out to all the young goats. I call them young goats because we've been trying to push that for like a thing in the media. But, you know, shout out to Regine. Shout out to Lil Soldier Slim. Shout out to Lil BG and Lil Juvie. Like, I'm trying to get something really going. Shout out to Lil Mike Tyson so many littles out here you know and we big in our own way but the world needs the continuation of that greatness you know because when you think about things historically whether it be the philippines uh or italy or whatever continent country you name it if there's been a king or a queen or somebody who did something remarkable that continued it didn't just die off when the person died you know what i mean yeah on the on it's a boxing um as a young as a young kid man my my boxing i've studied all the ali documentaries i i always binge watch the fights when i feel like I'm just binge watching ali's fights um let me ask you this who do you think he had a greater fight with foreman or fraser who was a great a better fight to you That's a tough one, but I'm gonna say, one. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say George Foreman, and the reason so? I say George, I, I'm gonna say George Foreman because while George Foreman had a lot of respect and a lot of admiration for my grandfather, he still had a job to do. You know, yeah, and you see that in the fight. Like he's like, yeah, I love you, but you know, I gotta come in. And so that was one thing. And my grandfather, even though he kind of, if you really pay attention, it was almost like he felt that and sensed that. But they kind of drew him back a little bit. He wasn't intimidated or something to be thinking about coming into that fight. Because I think, I don't want to say I think my grandfather underestimated George Foreman's ability. But I feel like there was definitely not enough seriousness taken into the ability. You know, because he was looking at it like maybe he's a young fan. You know, I ain't going to let him, I ain't going to do him too bad. You know, I ain't going to let him off too easy. But he ended up being more of a challenge than he anticipated. So that's why I said it was a better fight because that was one of them where he really had to kind of tighten up and, and not be, I wouldn't say arrogant, but not be um, too sure of himself. 
You feel me? Because with George Frazier, I mean, with Joe Frazier, you know, you knew their relationship and had was like a cool little tip to tap back and forth. So really with him, you already know what that one was going to be. And so after a while, it was just like, oh, it's him and, and Joe doing their little thing. They do like when Wayne and uh, 50 Cent go back and forth or like when Jay-Z and Wayne go back and forth, like you didn't really anticipate. They're both great. You're fans of them both, but you already kind of know how that's going to end. You know what I'm saying? What do you think of that iconic poster when uh, your grandpa was standing over Sonny Liston with his chat, but uh, be, be, you know, pumping his chest? You know that famous poster of Ali screaming down yeah. to Liston? Like, yeah, the most. Oh. When was the first time you saw that poster, Mark? I've been seeing, I've been seeing it my whole life. Like, it's definitely a picture that I feel like every barbershop and every black household, especially in the hood, got. Like, if you got a picture of Jesus, Dr. King, Malcolm X, you got that picture or something. Um, yeah. That's the, the most barbershop. famous Ali pick, I think. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I've always seen it. Um, and like I always tell people, he was Muhammad Ali second because he was always my granddaddy first. Like, my dad is a very reserved person, very private. And so we, we was kind of sheltered. Like, a good amount of my time was kind of like, really, don't be running around telling people that. Like, don't keep it to yourself and there was reasons why you know because again he's a civil rights activist so it really wasn't so much keeping it to ourselves because of other people and what they say as it is for like you know what time it is on some like pay attention to what happened to the black panthers and, and malcolm x type shit so um excuse my language it was that um but like i always seen that picture and i just thought it gave me power and once I understood what it meant, like, because even to this day, it's a symbol of power to me because it's the same as a picture of Malcolm X or Dr. King and everybody, literally, everybody got it in their house. And so it means something to me that it's literally like everybody in the world knows what that picture means. But then every black person has seen that picture. Every black person, every black person on planet Earth has seen that picture. And that's dope to me. Um, cause I, you know, I, I've heard the crazy story about the Phantom Punch and all this and that, and the, he said that somebody put something in his eyes and, you know, all of that. So I know that, you know, I didn't really understand until I was older why that fight was so iconic, like adulthood. But, um, going back to it, I think that it's not even so much the picture and the defeat of Sonny Liston that made it such a dope fight. It was just everything leading up to it and getting there and then it, and then it, and then it happened. Because he, he did so much to get Sonny List in the fight, you know, so um, it was just a good thing, man. Like, I always think about it like um, at the end of the day, um, it's just a really powerful and iconic picture. Like, I don't really have no other words for it other than powerful and iconic. All right, man. Um, now, um, I mean, again, I've always, for the most part, knew it really like because my father looks just like him, and so around Louisville, everybody, I know that's Ali's son. You got pet, Mark. yeah? You can you hear me? So, yo, what at what age uh, and who told you? Um, my father told me and my brothers, I mean, we've always known, and actually, I heard it from more people in the community because, again, my dad's very private and reserved. Um, so it wasn't so much him just like looking at us and be like, yeah, this is your granddaddy. And then it's not, it was just, you pick up on it. Cause you know, we were around 
other Ali's like Layla Ali and my dad were really close at one point in my life when I was a child and then at some point in my teenagehood they weren't as close and haven't been as close since um and so I don't I don't really know uh but I've always known I mean I've always been connected with other Ali's like my uncle Rock which is my grandfather's brother his son even used to be a boxer and my dad used to do a lot of stuff with him around that so i mean we practically lived with even um even used to take us to kentucky kingdom and six flags and stuff all the time when we was kids so we spent enough time around each other and with each other in my childhood i think just you know when you talk about like capitalism and racism in america and just how the plight is to be a person of color and then to be the first generation of color or that person in that family who has success and money and financial benefit and then keeping it, you know, maintaining it and then keeping your family together because money really does change families and change relationships with people and how they regard each other and deal with each other. Um, and so, like I said, I've always known he was always kind of like a distance thing, you know, and then a lot of feeling like, you know, talk about it um because he wasn't married to my grandmother you know and the kids that you know are you know for the most part I wouldn't say celebrated but known about you know he was married to their mothers and so uh you know it just goes back to being a celebrity and then having an image and you know you look at like an NBA young boy or Nick Cannon this same thing you know you know like Jay-Z I see stories about Jay-Z having all these hidden kids just like my age coming out the woodwork and stuff that look just like them and stuff so you, you know do you believe um, it about Jay-Z when, when they say it's Jay-Z's kid do you believe it I seen one where it was a guy and he looked enough like him you know looking <laughs> like somebody like looking like somebody's not necessarily like end all be all but you know the industry the industry is tied up and wrapped up with all kinds of crazy like little situations you know because yeah. some people just don't want you to know stuff like i see the, like gucci didn't want his kids being posted and a lot of people just think that the kids he has now is what he's got he's got, like older kids you just don't really see them you feel me and it's like this right when when i find out jay-z got a secret kid i'm not even surprised like i'm, I'm not even surprised Why am I, i'm not surprised man of course he does you know um, you're traveling the world and you're meeting people and people are coming to you because of who you are and it's you know it, it is what it is like I've never you know but I've had to endure like challenges of people being like you lying and oh yeah sure granddaddy well let's fight then you know like crazy stuff so for I kind sure moved into a place where it was like if I want you to know I guess you'll know but I look just like I look just like them like so you know what I'm saying? It's like people will see me, and if you, I mean, if you're a big enough fan, you know what it looks like. You know, I'm not as tall, but you can see it directly on my face. Like, oh, okay, that kid's definitely Ali. Like, and I'm very outspoken, you know. So, I mean, it comes out one way or the other. And, and um, you know, again, it's, it's just one of them things. Like, I didn't, I've always known he was my grandfather, but I didn't speak on much. It brought a lot of negativity sometimes. Because I always felt like here in Louisville, where he's from, he's not really celebrated in the way that, you know, like, again, that somebody who's contributed and done this much should be celebrated. Um, and then it's, it's just a different kind of culture here. Um, he had a lot of businesses like restaurants and even potato chips that never even was circulating in Louisville because it just that was the type of culture where it was kind of like home is where the hate is. And really? so... Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's getting better. Like, we have our Ali Fest coming up from June 2nd to the 11th. And I've been a partner in this and working with the Muhammad Ali Center. So, it's been cool, you know. But it's definitely something that it comes with a slow, like, very slow, something you got to be patient with kind of process. Because, you know, I get it, you know. And the thing is, when you got a celebrity and there's kids and, and grandkids and, and associations that come out the woodwork you know sometimes it does seem like it's a money thing right you know and that's one thing I've always been clear with like for me it's never that because I have my own legacy and my own things I do and I actually grew up with Layla and other Ali's in my life and like seeing them as a kid it's just I think more than anything it's just about images sometimes you know and, and wanting to make sure that the again the story's narrated right you know because Muhammad Ali is a very very important and iconic figure so we don't want to tarnish the name and the legacy but again if you kind of follow like with Ghostface Killer and the son he has and that whole thing going on yeah. you know it's unfortunate or even like it's unfortunate oh, that was sad. That was yeah sad. like and you know people see it you know we're all seeing it but we still watch power you know what I'm saying like we're not gonna stop watching BMF because 50 Cent and his son are having odds with each other but we also don't address it either like nobody's yeah. trying to you know what I'm saying? But check it out. No, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, man. And check it out. Like, fathers and sons, they're going to fight. It happens, you know? It happens. And, it um, and, you know, and just because they're fighting, it doesn't make them bad people. I think there's two sides to every story. But where they're both messing up, they stop putting it out on social media. Stop it. If you and your dad's going to fight, let it be. But y'all got to handle that behind closed doors, man. That's all. Well, you know, I think with a lot of people, you know, because, again, and I'm saying this specifically from being a child, um, grandchild of someone, of two influential people. Yeah. um, You know, it's like you don't want to really go to social media, but it's like when you've tried to handle it privately, you know, because in the past, I've definitely tried my best to, like, go to people very privately, very classy, politely, and then, you know, after so many ignored messages and no response, it's kind of like, okay, now we really need to talk, um, and that doesn't make it okay, but it's like, this is a serious ordeal, because, you know, I can't imagine what it's like to be 50 Cent's son, right? I mean, you live in, you live in the regular world, like, he's in Dubai, he's living his life, but you live in the regular world. You know, and he's 50 cents, so he's got beef and all this other things going on with all these people and all this going on, and you live in the regular world. Yeah. You know because you're not 50 cents, so you're not going to have six security with you all the time. You're not going, you know what I'm saying? And then you got to imagine being 50 cents baby mama and what that comes with. Because if you 50 cents baby mama, y'all from Jamaica, Queens, Southside Jamaica, Queens, and you come from the hood, we know how people in the hood are. She couldn't stay living in the hood with that type of child support coming in. And that type of success her baby daddy had, right? No doubt, she couldn't no raise her baby there, right? And no he, doubt. you know, he's a grown man now, but he's still 50 and he looks just like him. And everybody knows this is 50 cents. He was in his videos, you know what I'm saying? So you like, oh, okay, you the kid from the Wankster video. Yeah. And it's like to see him having a whole relationship with his brand new kid and you know, giving that kid basically everything that he's missed out on publicly, you know, so the world sees this and he don't get acknowledged. You know, it's a hard pill to swallow, you know, because it's like when I look on Wikipedia or anybody will look on Wikipedia and I say Muhammad Ali's kids and only nine of them show up. But clearly there is like more than nine, right? And it hurts because it's like you being erased from something or you're not being included in something. And so 
you try to deal with it privately, but it's like, okay, this ain't helping. I need to take this to a public format because I need outside influence. You know, it's like when you think about if you have a family, right, and you have a, a woman who verbally abuses and emotionally abuses her children, or it could be anybody, and nobody says nothing. We just all stand around and watch this happen, and it goes on and on. Nobody says nothing. Are we right or are we wrong? You know, because child abuse is child abuse, whether it's your child or somebody else's kid, it's abuse. Yep. You know, and I'm not saying that this is abuse. I'm just saying, you know, a lot of times we as people will move to going public or, you know, yelling something out loud. And like when you try to be quiet and polite about it, you still don't get no results or you'll get the same result you would have got from being loud. So I'd rather be loud. And then there's other eyes and witnesses to this. So I don't go crazy feeling like maybe I am tripping or maybe I'm overreacting. Or, you know what I'm saying? Because gaslighting is real. I mean, that's basically what America does to people of color every day, all day. That's why we protest and we march and, you know, we do what we do because when we've tried to just go to the council members or we've tried to just get lawyers and write letters and, you know, do the, the, the smaller level things, we've gotten no progress. So we moved to going and marching and standing in front of buildings and all of that because now we have to cause a scene. We got to make noise because when we try to be polite, you ain't you ain't feeling me you ain't hearing me you know it's like what tupac said in the interview you know we'll come we'll say we need some food you know hey hey um we need some food and then nobody say nothing you come in like we are hungry we need food and then nobody hear you and then you like all right hey we hungry and then you get to the point where okay now i don't start yelling and cussing you still don't hear me we right break this door down go here man i might break this door down we right break in your house and take your food you know, because it's you get so tired of just trying to stick away into the same abuse you would have. You know what I'm saying? So I think that they definitely need to, like, you know, see maybe a therapist together is what I could suggest just being on that track. Not to judge a name, but just there needs to be an intermediate in the middle to help everybody get to say they piece and then pull, you know what I'm saying, from both pieces to create a bigger idea to find a solution. Um, but a lot of celebrities out here, you know, you just get caught up in a lifestyle, I feel like. So you have children that you just, you're not there for, for whatever the reasons, you know. I know 50 has mentioned that he felt like it was because he felt like his money and his success, you know, his baby mamas and the children maybe envy him. And to me, that's an interesting perspective, but it's like, you never know. But if we don't address this stuff, how will you? Yeah, like... I get where he's coming from too. Sometimes he doesn't want to enable the kid, and then the kid feels like he needs to he needs to keep getting enabled from his ass, you know. And as a as a man, as a father, as a provider, Fifty Cent has the right to be human and also get tired of spoiling him. He Absolutely. has that right to feel tired. But you know, you know what? I'm gonna dive off on that. Check it out. Yeah, we'll be doing that all day, man. Before I let you go, um, this is the last question I want to ask. Um, what would be your advice and words of encouragement for the youth, especially in Louisville, Kentucky? Um, the disadvantaged youth, inner city youth, um, those who doesn't, you know, the have nots. What what would be your advice for them right now in this crazy country we, we live in? Well, and and it would be to the youth, but it would also be to the mom and dads of the youth. You feel me? Because sometimes they get a little overlooked. You know, and ain't nothing wrong with it. It's just 
I've dealt with a lot of mothers of victims of homicides that were under the age of 15. And I can tell you, man, these kids, they miss their homies, but these mothers miss their babies. Yes. And um, my, my message to everybody is just to, as Travis Nagdy would say, rest in peace. He was a protester from the movement when Breonna Taylor he passed away. Um, he would say, keep going. So that's the first thing, keep going. You know, because realistically, ain't none of us got no damn solution, man. We just all got to keep going because we know the game and we know that it's rigged. And so till we get a cheat code where we can get all the armor and all the money, you know what I'm talking about, baby, when we playing GTA. Yeah. Until we yep, can yep. get a cheat code where we can start the game exactly like that, we're going to have to keep going. And we're going to have to stay optimistic, you know, because sometimes it is stranger than fiction. But it's not all perfect. It's it's not all fiction. You know what I'm saying? There's some realism in all of this. And there's a place that exists where you can find peace. And it's okay to take a deep breath and stop for a second and get you some peace. It's okay to disconnect from where you feel like there's bad connections. And it's okay to have a bad day because we all do. You know what I'm saying? We all feel crazy. We all feel ghastly. We all feel like we work too much and don't vacation enough we all feel like we don't see somebody or hear from somebody enough but it's really not about none of that it's about just waking up every day and giving the next day a shot because you don't know what's gonna come out of it i promise that you know what i'm saying i always want people to start with that spreading love man we all fighting battles that the next person don't know nothing about secretly in our heads though you know what i'm saying so i always just tell people just you know keep going it's greatness in all of us like my granddad he would always say he wished that everybody in the world loved each other like they loved him and i want that same thing you know what i'm saying everybody in the world love each other like y'all love and admire and respect muhammad ali you ain't gotta be on no poster for me to respect you and love you and that's what i appreciate about the version of muhammad ali that i get to extend and be to the world is that I'm the Ali that showed you you don't even gotta be Muhammad Ali to be great. You can be whoever you wanna be and be your own version of great. Cause who are we from person to person to tell somebody what's great and not great? We all put Amen. our leg, you know, we put our pants on one leg at a time. We all doing that. I ain't met nobody that got a different way to do it. You know, amen, so. amen. I love it, man. Yo, Mark, thank you so much for doing this. Uh have a great Memorial Day. Uh, I'm gonna hit you back on the tax right now to uh, to keep you updated, and um, I just want to say thanks to everybody listening out there, and um, yo to the youth. I know it's a it's a crazy times we live in. Please, please, please spread love to each other, man. We need more of this, and you guys are the future of America. You guys are the future of this country. We need you. We need the youth. We're gonna need them someday, and whatever we pass on to them is that that's what they're gonna carry on and act out. So. Let's pass something greater to our youth, you know? And stop the violence. Amen. Stop Amen. The violence. NBA, look, young boy says stop the violence. Stop the violence. Mark Pants, one love, my G. I'm going to hit you back on text, all right? All right, man. One. Thank you. Peace, peace. Thanks, man.